I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, Episode 60, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, Volume 2, pages 367 to 379, Volume 2, Male Homosexuality, the Individual and the Collective. As long as homosexuality was defined as it has been for most of mankind's recorded history in terms of behavior, that is, in terms of homosexual acts, specifically sodomy, it remained a rather uncomplicated topic of social and moral discourse. A sodomite or homosexual was simply a generic term applied to a man who engaged in same-sex activity, generally with young boys or young men, either as an exclusive preference or as an adjunct to normal heterosexual congress. This term was also applied to an individual who permitted himself to be penetrated, that is, a man who took on the passive or woman's role. However, the idea that two adult men would choose to be lovers appeared to be rather ludicrous and perverse. For its part, the church soundly condemned all homosexual acts as objectively mortally sinful and urged the individual sinner, like all sinners, to reform his life, while the state viewed homosexuality as a vice to be discouraged, and in certain cases, criminalized. Today, however, the issue of homosexuality has become much more complex. The homosexual collective has engineered a successful paradigm shift that downplays homosexual acts in favor of the homosexual as a distinct type of person. That is a man who possesses a special nature that manifests itself in an inborn desire for simulated sexual relations with members of his own sex. The medicalization of homosexuality that began in the mid-1800s with his emphasis on homosexuality as an inherited degenerative disorder has accelerated this paradigm shift in favor of the opponents of homosexuality. Therefore, like it or not, there are many many non-theological issues related to homosexuality that require some explanation if one is to fully understand the current battle over homosexuality in the church today. Chapter 6 examines the nature of homosexuality and the many causal factors associated with its development in the young male, including familial disruptions and premature sexual seductions, without downplaying the moral dimensions of homosexuality and the issue of free will. It is intended to provide the reader with a broad overview of the root causes of homosexuality. Chapter 7 deals explicitly with homosexual acts and homosexual relationships. It also includes other behavioral aspects of homosexual life, including domestic violence, drug use, pornography, male prostitution, and murder, homicide, and suicide. Chapter 8 is a prelude to later segments on clerical sexual molestation of boys and young men. It provides a clear definition of indifferences between pedophilia and pederasty, as well as a clinical summary of both. It also examines the love-hate relationship that exists between homosexuals who prefer adult partners and those who prefer adolescent males. Chapter 9, with the final chapter in this section, takes a no-holds-barred view of the homosexual collective. Whatever mitigating factors contribute to the moral plight 
of the individual homosexual. They do not apply to the homosexual collective and its minions. It's them or us. Chapter 6. Male Homosexuality, Its Nature and Causes. The nature of male homosex. When we speak of the nature of a person or thing or act, we are taking, talking about the intrinsic characteristics and qualities that are essential to him or it. Recognizing that the word sex can refer to the sexual act as in having sex or to gender identity as in male or female, what then is the essence of homosex? Homosex is unnatural sex. The unnaturalness of homosex is self-evident. The opposite of straight is crooked. No heterosexual ever walked into a physician's or psychiatrist's office and said, hey, hey, and said, Doc, you just got to turn me into a homosexual. Heterosexuality is instinctive to man. It is a biological norm for the human species with obvious survival benefit. Unless interfered with, man is heterosexual in his essential nature. All men, including male homosexuals, have heterosexual strivings, that is, they strive toward normalcy. The heterosexual does not pass through a necessary homosexual phase of development, as suggested by some writers on the subject. Rather, it is a homosexual who fails to achieve normal heterosexual maturity. While homosexuals emphasize, fantasize that all heterosexuals are potential or latent homosexuals, reality dictates just the reverse. All homosexuals are potential or latent heterosexuals. And recalling George Orwell's astute observation that there are things so foolish that only the intellectuals can believe them, the Dutch psychologist Gerard J.M. van der Oudrig Ph.D. states the obvious, that something must be wrong with people who, although, the, although psychologically, physiologically men and women do not feel attracted to the obviously natural objects of the propagation-directed instinct. Further, as noted by American psychiatrist Dr. Melvin Anschell, author of A Psychoanalytic Look, at homosexuality and age, a homosexual is not only deviant in his choice of sex object, that is, the person from whom sexual attraction proceeds, but also in his sexual aim, that is, the sexual act to which an individual aspires. Homosex is neurotic sex. In his classic work on homosexual reparative therapy, The Battle for Normality, Van der Aardweg characterized homosex as not merely an isolated preference or singular functional disturbance in the sexual realm, but as an expression of a specific neurotic personality that includes phobias, obsessions, depressions, or other sexual anomalies. In Homosexuality, Disease, or Way of Life, Edmund Berger, M.D., described homosexuality as a neurotic disease in which severe and unavoidable self-damaging tendencies engulf the whole personality. Berger agreed with von der Oudwig that homosexuality represented a neurotic distortion of the total personality and that there are no healthy homosexuals. In simple non-medical language, as expressed by the Jesuit writer Reverend 
Thomas McGrath in the early 1960s, every homosexual has a personality problem. The homosexual is an immature being, McGrath said, and he clings to this immaturity, not just in choice of love object, but in almost all other areas of personality integration as well. In 1970, the outspoken sexual libertarian and clinical psychotherapist, Dr. Albert Ellis, director of the Institute for Rational Living in New York City, made similar observations on the subject of homosexuality as a neurosis. In an interview with writer Arno Carlin, who was researching his book, Sexuality and Homosexuality, Ellis told Carlin that while he defended a man's right to be a sexual deviant, he was against homosexual apologists who argued the case for the well-adjusted homosexual. Ellis stated that while it was true that some homosexuals were pretty were better adjusted than others, as a whole, they seemed pretty nutty. Most of the homosexuals he saw at the Institute were seriously disturbed, said Ellis. Ellis also stated that while he used to think that most homosexuals were simply neurotic, he now believed that maybe 50% of them were borderline psychotic. Homosex is masochistic, sadistic sex. Dr. Berger described homosexuality not as a way of life, but as a way of masochistic destruction, and the homosexual as a psychic masochist who unconsciously wishes to suffer and who takes pleasure in drowning himself in a fathomless sea of self-pity that is fed by his self-created daily ritual of injustice collecting. Unlike the normal heterosexual lover who is overwhelmed with feelings of great happiness and elation, said Berger, the homosexual views his affairs through the lens of torturous agonies doubt and irrational jealousies. His behavior is marked by self-punishment and pseudo-aggression towards his sex partners. He derives a blend of masochistic and sadistic pleasure and excitement from defeat and humiliation. The homosexual is also plagued by an inner depression and an exaggerated and free-flowing malice, which is ready for use any time, he concluded. Ismond Rosen, M.D., editor of the classic work Sexual Deviation, wrote, Aggression plays an important role in the ideology of perversion, including homosexuality. He quoted Dr. Robert J. Stoller, professor of psychiatry at the UCA, UCLA School of Medicine, who has identified aggression in the form of hatred as a primary motive in perversion, it, aggression, takes form in a fantasy of revenge hidden in the actions that make up the perversion and serve to convert childhood trauma to adult triumph, Stoller stated. Anshul has confirmed these analyses. Homosexuals enjoy inflicting physical and or moral pain, humiliation, on their sex objects, a condition referred to as sadism, and they also enjoy having the pain inflicted on themselves. Masochism, he stated. They have no real regard for anyone but themselves. They are not capable of compassionate, affectionate love for their sex partners. Where the homosexual loves, he has no desire, and where he desires, he cannot love, said Ancho. Without affectionate feelings, sex partners serve only for the purpose of orgasmic response, 
one partner serves as well as another, Anshul said. Homosex is pseudosex. In his classic work, Homosexuality in American Public Life, Christopher Wolfe, professor of political science at Marquette University, repeated a line by comedian Rodney Dangerfield, who joked about being afraid the first time he had sex because he was alone. The laugh from the audience comes from the fact that normal people understand that general stimulation is not really sex, that masturbation de solo is not really sex. Real sex implies an other. Homosex is, in fact, a form of autoeroticism, a reenactment of sentiment, pubertal, sentimental pubertal fantasies. Van der Aardweg has written, In homosex, as in solitary masturbation, there is no other, no person outside of oneself. Only two names seeking gratification through mutually stimulated masturbatory actions. The your turn, my turn, orgasmic ritual of homosexuals is indicative of the fact that the homosexual's sensual pleasures come from his own body and not only and are not directed toward his sex partner. His partner's satisfaction is not the homosexual's major consideration. Indeed, if it were physically possible for the homosexual to flate or sodomize himself, he could dispense with his sex partner altogether, as the Marquis de Sade attempted to do while in prison. In essence, homosexual acts are the reenactment of the Greek myth of Narcissus, the youth who spurned the love of Echo and instead fell in love with his own reflection. Narcissus pined his life away until the gods mercifully transformed him into a flower that bears his name. Homosex is profoundly narcissistic and selfish. Wolf quoted the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition's definition of narcissism as a perversive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. The narcissistic person is preoccupied with intentions, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love, said Wolf. The homosexual narcissist pursues the goal of pleasure, including the pleasure of anonymous sex. General body parts are joined or stimulated, but there is no sense of communion, unity, and oneness that characterizes the nature and loving characterizes the mature and loving marital embrace, concluded Wolf. A homosexual does not know his partner in the biblical sense. In many cases he does not even know his partner's name, or in the case of tea room trade, see his partner's face. Sodomy has often been hyped as a form of super hot sex, but one would have a difficult time selling it as a fulfillment of the commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. Rarely, if ever, are homosexual acts described in anything remotely resembling terms that describe the conjugal act whereby completeness and wholeness are achieved by the reconciliation of complementary beings and two become one flesh. The latter is an achievement on a cosmic scale, wrote D.M. Cameron. He reminded those who attempt to trivialize sex and empty it of all meaning that they have no appreciation for the immensely old human tradition of venerating the powers of sexuality or hedging them about with taboos, myths, piety, an attitude for which the 
sexual is not an extra a relaxation, a consolation, a relief of tension, though it may also be all of these things, but a part of the sacred order of the cosmos. The former, that is, homosex, is described in rather unsentimental and graphic language by Cleveland psychiatrist Dr. Samuel Negro in his essay, Why Homosexuality is a Disorder. Homosex, says Negro, is nothing more than a form of obsessive excretory pseudosexual squirting, a substrata of jaculosis, that is, an involuntary emotional repetition compulsion of a non-reproductive and therefore perverse, according to Freud, ejaculation reflects voluntarily professed to be essential to one's identity, including all other paraphilias and related disorders. Anal penetration is a particularly violent, degrading, and demeaning practice, so much so that were one to utter the term intimate in the same breath as sodomy, one would be guilty of uttering a universal blasphemy. Little wonder that the image of the vampire has been invoked by a number of homosexuals, from Andre Gide to Robert Maplethorpe, to describe the role of the active partner engaged in sodomy. Homosex is the antithesis of and hostile to real sex. In the everyday real world, sex is framed about love and affection, commitment, marriage, and baby-making. The fact that these elements may not follow in this exact order, or that a man and woman may enter into a sexual relationship and sincerely does not negate this reality. Homosex is about none of these. Rather, homosex is about unabashed, lust, rampant, almost unimaginable promiscuity and depravity and sterility. Homosex is depersonalized sex. Sexual objectification is one of the chief characteristics, chief characteristics of homosex. Homosex is an unperson to unperson act, as Negro pointed, has pointed out. The homosexual is not a lover in the traditional sense of the word. He is a sexual consumer. He does not have lovers, he has partners. As Burglar also reported, it is this depersonalization factor in homosex that makes it such a poor and unsatisfying sexual diet. In a genuine love between a man and woman, and a woman, body, mind, and spirit are inexorably intertwined. A high premium is placed on the total integration. Monogamy is valued. Homosex, on the other hand, is essentially dualistic or Gnostic in nature. The body is divided from the psyche and soul. One's partner is used as a means to an end, that of achieving erotic satisfaction. The homosexual usually reserves his feelings of affection for persons other than his sexual partner, including relatives, especially their mothers, friends, including non-homosexual men and sisters, that is, former sex partners who become lifelong friends, like Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas and Anthony Blunt and Peter Montgomery. As Negro has pointed, has noted, in homosex there is no transcendental person-to-person -person commitment, no sacrifice for the other. Homosexual couplings are imper impermanent and unfaithful because of transcendental illiteracy, he said. This dualistic aspect of homosex is manifested in many homosex rituals at gay bars and baths where homosexuals use fashion accessories 
or assume different poses to indicate to strangers their anatomical preference, that is, the bodily orifice they desire to penetrate or be penetrated. This dualism, this division of the physical from the affections and emotions is also evident in the importance that many male homosexuals place on general size in the selection of their sex partners. Any, according to Dr. Irving Bieber, author of the 1950-1960 study, Homosexuality, a Psychoanalytic Study, while heterosexuals in his study were satisfied with their natural endowment, homosexuals were consistently dissatisfied with the size of their sexual organs and wanted larger ones. As Bieber noted, many homosexuals sought out partners with bigger penis size, either as a compensation for feelings of inadequacy as a castrate or as a means of symbolically incorporating the partner's sexual power through the ingestion of the partner's semen, which was perceived as being more potent. Contrary to gay psych warfare propaganda, monogamy is not highly valued by homosexuals especially uh, those in their late teens and early 20s who prefer sexual adventure, variety, and anonymity to a monogamous diet of sex. Young homosexuals never settle down with their high school sweethearts, as Rita Reed reminisces in her short work, Growing Up Gay, The Sorrows and Joys of Gay and Lesbian Adolescents. First loves among male and female homosexuals are generally very short-lived. It might surprise the reader to learn just how highly prized sexual promiscuity is among some homosexuals. In his essay, Male Dominance in the Gay World, found in the making of the modern homosexual, Greg Blackford mused on the virtue of promiscuous homosex, Casual, gay casual sex can be seen as a reflection of this narrow definition of legitimate sex that is connected, that is sex connected to love and possible reproduction as it expands its range of possible meanings, he said. It includes seeing sex as a form of recreation, simply a game or a hobby, as fun. It is divested of all its moral and guilt overtones and is enjoyed as an end in itself, Blatchford noted. He then quoted Canadian sociologist John A. Lee, author of Getting Sex, A New Approach, More Fun, Less Guilt. It is time to argue that in at least one way, the gay world is better. Gay people are generally less inhibited about the enjoyment of playful and uncommitted sex. Sex with more joy and less guilt is something gay people can teach the rest of the world. Pat Califia, a self-identified, transgenderized bisexual person, has also decried the call for monogamous relationships among homosexual men. According to Califia, the sad fact is that if all gay men settle down into pairs like animals clamming into Noah's Ark, a world of possibilities would disappear. A culture that embraces non-monogamy, casual public sex, erotic art, sex toys, Costuming and a theatrical attitude toward pleasure is a national treasure, not a shameful anachronism, concluded Califia. Homosex is exploitative sex. 
a carryover from the Victorian period and the heyday of Fabian socialism is the still popular notion of the egalitarian nature of homosexuality. Homosex is suppo- homosex supposedly breaks down all barriers of class and social standing as men of the upper classes happily convert with rough trade from the lower classes. A theory of democratization through perversion, however, is an illusion. Homosex between men of different stations in life does not erase these differences. It accentuates them. Today, as in Oscar Wilde's time, the nexus that makes the homosexual world go round remains hard, cold cash. Money offers mobility and a large selection of partners, regardless of the client's looks or age or sexual wants. Homosexual pairings, especially those of a strictly commercial nature, are always, are almost always unequal. Older homosexuals prefer much younger partner prostitutes. Wealthy homosexuals often prefer rough trade and manly heterosexual male prostitutes. The poor make do with who is left, usually each other. Homosex is predatory sex. The homosexual collective recruits like the army. Individual homosexual proselytize and seduce new recruits. For the homosexual, every male is a potential homosexual, either overt, latent, or suppressed. Burglar reported that homosexuals divide the world into two classes, the openly homosexual and the potential candidate. The unfounded megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal conviction of the homosexual's superiority and of the ubiquity of homosexual trends, said Burglar, leads the homosexual to believe that almost every man has some homosexual inclinations. He noted that American poet Walt Whitman, an early advocate of man-to-man love, was convinced that all wounded Civil War soldiers were homosexuals, and he accordingly kissed them on the lips when he visited them in the hospital wards. With rather prophetic insight, in 1962, Burglar warned of the pitiful and tragic spectacle of the statistically induced homosexual, that is, a borderline youth in his late teens or early 20s, who is induced to take up homosexuality, even though he might not actually be homosexual. Negro, in his own inimitable style, summarized the predatory nature of homosex when he said, homosexuals colonize and recruit as if by binary fission, both in and out of the workplace, to produce a state of homotoxicity. At the collective level, he said, homosexuals infiltrate and metastasize, taking over any and every group possible by compounding of their cognitive defects. Homosex is profane sex. First and foremost, homosex stands in opposition to the natural law, the eternal law that binds all men in all places, at all times, and is a grievous sin against God the Father, the author of nature, his vicar general. The Marquis decided to pay a backhanded tribute to nature when he recognized that homosexuality embraced the negation of all moral values. Stoller has labeled all perversions, including homosexuality, as an erotic form of hatred, hatred of God, hatred of oneself, and hatred of one's neighbor. Homosex is intrinsically sinful, and is this reality rather than any cultural prejudice that induces guilt in the unchaste homosexual. Fortunately, as 
London Ardweg has observed, while sexual desire tends to cloud the usually weaker moral feelings in a homosexual, they cannot do away with his moral conscience altogether. Conscience is always a participant in our behavior and in our motivation, no matter how hard we try to dismiss her, he said. Therefore, a part of good and effective therapy for the homosexual who desires to extricate himself from the homosexual cult and achieve wholeness as a man is to help the homosexual discover his authentic conscience, not the Freudian ersatz, said the Dutch psychologist. Is homosex about sex at all? A rather strange question, is it not? After all, the homosexual's role, sole claim to fame, is a desire and absolute right to engage in sex with other men. However, the fact that the more sex he gets, the less fulfilling it becomes suggests that the homosexual is searching for something that lies outside the realm of physical sex per se. Indeed, as Colin Wilson, author of The Misfits, a study of sexual outsiders, had once quipped, the basic paradox about sex is that it always seems to be offering more than it can deliver. Fantasy sex is less complicated, less demanding than reality. The belief that homosexual desires are driven more by non-sexual or neurotic needs than purely erotic cravings has been expressed in many different ways by individuals representing a wide variety of academic and medical disciplines. Bieber, for example, stated that homosexual behavior is an expression of irrational, defensive, and reparative needs. He saw homosexuality as a psychological and emotional problem, not a sexual one. Psychotherapist Richard Cohen has described the homosexual drive as a homo-emotional drive. Homosexuals need to develop healthy, healing, non-sexual bonding to meet the deeper, unmet love needs of his past, Cohen believes. Dr. Gustav Bichowski had claimed that homosexuality results from an immature ego characterized by fetishistic, narcissistic, and oral sadistic elements. Dr. Karen Horney, the prominent German psychoanalyst who emigrated to the United States in 1932, and Dr. Clara Thompson, an American psychiatrist and psychoanalytic theoretician, hold that homosexuality is fundamentally a symptom of a character problem. That is, it is a consequence of unresolved problems of dependency, aggression, and early familial disturbances, all covertly expressed through same-sex relationships. Both Horney and Thompson report that homosexual desires diminish as these general character problems are solved. Other professionals see homosexuality as a search for a more adequate masculine identity. Contrary to popular opinion, most homosexuals are not gender-confused. They do not want to be women. They know they are men and they are content being men, but they feel weak, inadequate, and incomplete as a man at the inner core of their being. Hence, their search to find the missing part of themselves and other male sex partners. Stoller has contrasted the feminine demeanor of the primary transsexual or transvestite with that of the effeminate homosexual who acts out of character or mimicry of a feminine woman. 
the secret revelation of masculinity and maleness. There is something exaggerated or unnatural, a display, a sarcasm about the latter. Stoller has observed he may have identified with women in childhood and admired them, but the admiration is mixed with envy, anger, a clear, if even, even if subtle, underlining in one's behavior that one is not a woman, but a man making fun of a woman, he said. Even though physiologically speaking, the homosexual is quite capable of engaging in normal heterosexual intercourse, emotionally and mentally he feels he cannot compete with other men in the sphere, sexual sphere and in the world at large. Homosexuality becomes a defense mechanism by which he can by which he can escape threatening sexual advances from females and unwelcome competition by heterosexual males, Stoller concluded. Vanden Ardwig agrees with Stoller. Homosexuals often seek in others what they lack or more precisely what they feel that they lack in themselves. As a rule of thumb, the heart of a homosexual's inferiority complex may be deduced from the traits he most admires in others of the same sex. Vanden Ardwig said, Bieber concurred that often homosexuals will seek out specific qualities in their partners in order to fulfill their subjective needs, both sexual and non-sexual. When the 32-year-old poet W.H. Auden took the barely 18-year-old Chester Kalman as his lover, he not only wanted to eat Chester, he wanted to be Chester, to magically absorb Chester's masculinity and make it his own. As Bieber explained, Auden's great love with his initial excitement became an exercise in anxiety, rage, and depression as his magical expectations were inevitably frustrated by a selfish, promiscuous, spoiled Chester. Victorian writer J.R. Ackley, after being reproved by his able-bodied sailor boy partner for performing an unwelcome act of fellatio, remarked rather bitterly, I suppose I acted toward my sailor thus because his body was so beautiful and desirable that I simply wanted to eat it. Dr. Mervyn Glasser of the Portman Clinic, London, has identified one of the major compartment, one of the major components of perversions like homosexuality as a deep-seated and pervasive longing for an intense and most intimate closeness to another person, amounting to emerging a state of oneness and a blissful union. This desire for intimacy is shared by most normal people, he said, but in the case of the pervert, it persists pervasively in this most primitive form. In one way or another, the ultimate result is seen as his being taken over or totally by the object so that his anxiety is a total annihilation, Glasser noted. Barnhouse placed considerable emphasis on issues of power and dominance in her analysis of homosexual behaviors. She stated that many homosexuals patronize gay bars and bears for anonymous reasons that have nothing to do with genuine sexual attraction between compatible people. For homosexuals with unresolved power issues, she said, their type of adaptation relationships tend to be structured in terms of dominance and submission. Berger has also contended that homosex has less to do with sex than with masochistic allure 
and the domination and subjugation of others. In his treatment of homosexuals, Burglar found that separating the homosexual desire from the masochistic concomitant kills homosexuality. Sodomy is an act of raw aggression and violence, not lovemaking, wrote Philip Howard Gray, a specialist on the significance of parental imprinting on the young. Gray attributed homosexuality to faulty and underdeveloped parental imprinting. According to Gray, symbolically, in the act of sodomy, the homosexual is using his phallus like a serial murderer running a knife through his victim. The normally imprinted individual will, on adulthood, mate with an appropriate species member and the appropriate gender, same species, opposite sex, appropriate age, and real individuals, not fantasy figures, concluded Gray. In summary, homosexuality is an objective psychiatric disorder accompanied by strong internal feelings of guilt and hate. Like all sexual perversions, homosex is an acquired behavior in which learning, experience, and habituation are key factors, but in which individual constitutional propensities may also play a role. Early causal factors in homosexual male in homosexual maldevelopment. There is an old saying that to discover the secret of a human being in the making, one must go back to the time of his youth. Homosexuals are made, not born, but their making and possible unmaking remains a highly unique and complex personal experience. As the 10-year-old Berber study on homosexuality revealed, homosexuality is not a single clinical entity. And Dr. Lawrence Hatterer is correct when he said that any monocular view makes a theory or therapy naive, narrow, and fatally limited. Nevertheless, there are certain common causalities that appear to contribute to the sexual maldevelopment of the human male in his formative years, that is, during the stages of infancy, childhood, and adolescence. According to Barnhouse, in cases of sexual perversion, more than one stage is disturbed, and that disturbance takes place over an extended period of time. Further, these causal factors need not occur in every case to be valid, she asserted. According to Stoller, the development of sexual perversion and neurosis in the young person results not from trauma per se, but from the destructive resolutions of the conflict arising out of the trauma or change in the status quo. For example, the initial trauma may be non-sexual and external, such as the death of a father at an early age, a figurative separation as in the case of an emotionally distant father, or a prolonged childhood illness. Sometimes the trauma may be sexual and internal, such as those caused by premature sexual seduction and habituation to perverted acts that are common in predatory environments, such as a boarding school or orphanage. The sex initiator can be a brother, a relative, a peer, or an older man. In such cases, the child does not have control over the trauma, but as he grows to manhood, he does have control over his response to the trauma and his subsequent actions. In some situations, youth is able to handle the trauma in a satisfactory and constructive way. Others choose a self-destructive course of conflict 
resolution that may inflict sexual perversion, that may include sexual perversion. According to Barnhouse, in determining choice of behaviors in response to such traumas, social sanctions play a vital role. She makes it clear in her writings that perversion is a motivation factor, is a motivation behavior. That is, it involves choice. When a person chooses to act in a deviant manner, such action has a moral quality, she said. Parental roles in the fostering same-sex attraction disorder, SSAD, systematic familial disturbances feature prominently among the many ideological factors that contribute to the development of same-sex attraction disorder, SSAD, in the young male child. Dr. Richard Fitzgibbons, a member of the National Association for the Research and Treatment of Homosexuality, NARTH, has reported. Within the nuclear family, parents are the primary architects of family structure and fundamentally determine the ongoing interactive process. Bieber has affirmed. Although no two family although no two family constellations are identical, there are some general observations that can be made regarding the role of parents and siblings in the formation of childhood traits and impulses associated with homosexual maldevelopment. As Dr. Richard Green has observed from his own practice, while there is no absolute foolproof home recipe guaranteed to produce a homosexual son, there are common themes throughout the lives of men who identify themselves as homosexuals. First, the family patterns of homosexuals are disturbed in characteristic ways, which seldom appeared in the families of non-homosexuals. Second, it is the combination and interaction of both parents to each other and to their children and not the father or mother alone that contributes to traits and behaviors that are conducive to homosexual development in a particular child. Third, these neurotic and or pathological traits and impulses exist in a pre-homosexual age child, for want of a better term, at an early age, that is, before adolescent sexual development begins and before a young man identifies his homoerotic desires. In other words, the each child youth is a neurotic first. He later chooses homosexual behavior as an expression of compl- conflict resolution. Fourth, the each child is unlikely to act out such inclinations unless he senses subtle or overt encouragement and or permission from one or both parents for such behavior. And that concludes my reading from Volume 2 of the Rite of Salome, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel. And uh, I won't have time now for a reading from the Catechism, so I'll conclude my podcast now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast. May the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.